Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, the back of your New Testament. We will begin a new series uh, this morning, and I'll introduce that in, in just a moment. While you're turning there, although this shouldn't be particularly difficult to find, not like in the end of your Old Testament and finding a particular prophet, uh, but I uh, just wanted to share something with you uh, that I, I received a call this morning uh, about 8.15. Now, normally, uh, 8.15 calls for me are not things I would look forward to. Anyone who knows me usually is not going to call me, so that means it's either a wrong number or bad news um, that somebody has an emergency. But this one was a pleasant surprise. I received a call from Preston Clarkson. And Preston just wanted me to pass along to you that they are well. Uh, they, uh, despite what you're seeing in the news, they are, they are safe. They are fine. They're living in Jordan, but on the border of Syria. He said, but they're far enough away that uh, the likelihood of any even wind bringing any chemical warfare uh, their way would be very minimal. Uh, one sense the uh, thing that is happening is because it's creating more refugees in Syria, they are going into Preston's neighborhood, and so he has more relationships uh, to be able to build and to share, uh, share the gospel with as he shares his life with them. And so while it still is a sad thing, we're seeing how the Lord can bring beauty out of ashes in that. Um, and he said that the one thing, and I asked him how, what will be the effect on his, you know, people receiving him if, uh, if America uh, do uh, intervene uh, in Syria. And he said that those who are coming his way, the refugees by and large, um, are hopeful that the Americans will intervene. And they actually are naively assuming that if something happens that they will uh, be able to go home in a week or so after it happens. And so... Uh, so I would just ask, it's not so much what Preston said, but just ask that we would be in prayer for Preston to have wisdom, for God to help the people not to become disappointed uh, because their ideas are, are not uh, rooted in reality. Uh, but to continue as we pray for Preston, for Sarah, for Asher, uh, that they would be able to be effective in that. And Preston wanted me to pass along that he misses you all, he loves you very much, um, but they are, they are doing very well. Turn our attention now to uh, our text in Revelation chapter 2. As I said, we're beginning a new series. We'll be looking at chapters 2 and 3 uh, during the, most of the fall um, and uh, uh, during the autumn. And I, just first thing I would say is for those of you who may not have studied this book in great depth, not everything in the book of Revelation is weird stuff. <laughs> we are not going to deal with the weird stuff. We're going to be dealing with uh, specific letters that... Jesus dictated through the Apostle John to specific churches that exist, existed at the time. They are really very short versions of like any other letter you would find in the New Testament. They are very specific, dealing with very specific issues pertinent for them, but with universal application. And as we consider what Jesus says to the churches, he also says that we should consider anyone who has an ear should listen, because it's not only for them, but it's for our benefit, whether for our correction our encouragement, whatever it is, his purpose, his word will speak to us. We begin this morning with the uh, first letter in cha chapter 2, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Before we read our text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come with great thanksgiving that you have spoken. You have spoken through your prophets. You have spoken perfectly through your Son. You have recorded your words that we may learn them, hear them. And your spirit continues to speak to our spirits. Father, we come with the great hope 
and even the expectation that as we can take this time to hear and to study your word, that your spirit will speak to us. That it, you will open our hearts and open our minds that we may have understanding, not only of what you desire, but of our own condition, our own need, and, and how great your love is for us and what you have done, not only to speak to it, but provide for us. Lord, I pray that your word would have a powerful impact in renewing our hearts, shaping our lives, and building us all up into full maturity in Christ, where we will have joy and fellowship with one another and with the Son, who is the word incarnated himself. It's in him that we pray. Amen. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have in your... In, this you, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May the Lord bless us, give us understanding of his holy word. July 23, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 took off from Montreal, headed toward Edmonton, Alberta. On board this plane, there were 69 passengers and a complete crew. About halfway into the flight, the pilot heard an alarm go off and read the indicator that told him that there was a problem with the fuel pressure. Quickly, uh, considering the circumstance, he realized it was not a, not a great problem. He flipped over primary to the, to the other fuel tank and felt that they were safe to continue on their journey. In fact, assumed it was probably just a gauge or, or something, that, uh, but it wouldn't be a great deal, a great problem. Soon thereafter, another alarm went off and saying that he had the same problem from the other side of the plane and the other fuel pump. Realizing this was a problem, he and his co-pilot decided that they would land at their, at their first opportunity. And so they radioed down and thought about a, an old Air Force base that uh, had a landing strip, the only one su sufficient for uh, this size of an aircraft, only to find out that the base and the landing strip had been turned into a drag race uh, strip which has a big concrete barrier running down the middle of the, uh, of the runway. And to make it worse is that this was a race weekend 
family weekend, and so not only was there a barrier on the strip, but there were people and tents and cars and RVs parked everywhere all around, making it impossible for them to even consider approaching. Soon after this discovery, another alarm went off, one that they said that they didn't recognize. Neither the pilot nor co-pilot recognized it, couldn't remember having, having heard it before. But it was an alarm indicating to them that both engines had now gone out. Now really in a fix, the pilot at 28,000 feet realized that he needed to land this plane somehow with no power. All the instruments had gone dark, no instruments, and no ability to even to open the wheels, let the wheels down, and no sufficient landing strength. This particular pilot had a hobby of, with gliders, which was helpful. But gliders are not really intended for 300,000-pound vessels. But apparently this pilot used a maneuver, which I read, but still have no idea what he did, and was able to land the plane with minimal damage and no harm to any of the passengers or anyone in the crew, on the crew. A subsequent investigation as to what happened there not only vindicated the pilot, he and his co-pilot were commended uh, for their work, received honors and were celebrated because of their quick thinking and their, and their skill. But the problem was revealed. At that time, the Canadian uh, air uh, planes were shifting from, a, uh, from an imperial system to a metric system of measuring their, their, their fuels and, and, uh, that the planes needed. And while the, fuel, the plane required 22,300 kilograms of fuel, apparently with the technician who had not made the switch yet, put in 22,300 pounds of fuel, just over half the fuel necessary to safely make the flight from Montreal to Edmonton. As I read the story and as I thought about it again, it's a wonderful reminder that while in this case everything ended up well and safe, when you use the wrong metric, sometimes there can be serious consequences. And that's pertinent for us this morning as we consider this particular text and the church in Ephesus because the church in Ephesus was using the wrong metric to evaluate their own spiritual vitality and faithfulness to Christ. Now, when we look at this letter and all of these subsequent letters, it's important to recognize that these letters are written to churches, corporate, and personality. And so there are certain applications that we would apply to our own church and we would learn from. But it's also important for us to realize that churches and the personalities they have are simply an expression of the composite of all of the individual believers that are part of the church. And so even though at times we're speaking about the attitude of a church, we're really speaking about the attitude, the perspective, and the lives of all of the believers. And so this speaks to us as a church, as Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church, but it speaks to us too as, as individuals who are called and are part of this community and part of this family. And the people in this church were using the wrong grid, the wrong standard, the wrong measurement to evaluate their lives and their relationship with Jesus Christ. And the reason that that is pertinent for us is because we are so prone to use the exact same measuring stick that it appears that they were using. And just as it is potentially 
tragic for someone to use only half the fuel because they use the wrong measuring stick. It, it can be hazardous to our spiritual vitality and our relationship with Christ if we are not using the correct metric to evaluate our relationships with Jesus. Now, the church in Ephesus is the church that we know more about than any other church in all of antiquity. We first encountered them in Acts chapter 19. Paul was on his third missionary journey. He came to the city of Ephesus. He ran across a couple of guys who apparently were already believers. That was discovered when they got into a conversation. Paul decided he would hang out with them, and he began to teach them from beginning and end of all of the Scripture as to how they testified to Christ, what God was like, what God had revealed of himself, what God wanted from us, what God has done for us from beginning to end. And he stayed for three years teaching them from all of the Scriptures in great depth and great detail. He stayed three years, which is longer than anywhere else that he had stayed ever and, or ever again. He never served or taught anyone as frequently or as often as he did the church in Ephesus. We also know that the church in Ephesus had an incredible lineup of pastors. Even after Paul spent the three years there, when it, he decided that it was time God was calling him elsewhere, he tabbed his, uh, his uh, protege, Timothy, and turned over the pastoral relation to, pastorate to him. And Timothy continuing to teach the things that Paul had entrusted to him, pastored that church for a number of years, teaching and showing them the importance, the centrality of the gospel, the glory of God, God's grace, and how much God loved the people, continued to teach them. Church history tells us that there were at least two other pastors there that you might know, particularly those who were Bible studies. The Apostle John at one time was a pastor of the church in Ephesus. A man named Apollos that we meet in the book of Acts. He doesn't have a letter named after him. Some are inclined to believe he's the author of the book of Hebrews. We don't know. We won't know for quite some time. But we do know that he was perhaps the greatest orator uh, of that time. And so the likelihood is during his time preaching and teaching the truth that had been entrusted to him, it was probably a great time of growth within the church because he would have been, in the phrase they call him, a, a pewpacker. People wanted to hear him speak, and he taught the truth. We know about the church in Ephesus because there's significant writing as well uh, from them. Because not only do we have Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which helps us to see issues that were going on at the church at the time as he's writing to them and how they should address them and some great understanding of who God is. We have Paul's letters to Timothy, as Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus when Paul was writing uh, to him in First and Second Timothy and dealing with issues within the church, common things that uh, all of us deal with from time to time in, in, our, in church communities. And we have the wisdom there that enable us to see into the church and what the corrective uh, advice was to be given. Many scholars think that John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were written by John to this church that he had once pastored, he'd now moved on, and so everything he's writing in these letters, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And then we also have this letter here, dictated by Jesus through the Apostle John to a church that John loved and that Jesus loved. We know a lot about them. And in this letter, what we see is Jesus says, there's a lot of stuff in this church that is good. Jesus commends them for some really good stuff. But he says in this letter in the beginning is, while there's an awful lot that is commendable, there is something that's lacking. And it's something that's important. In fact, it's something that is essential. And as we look at this letter, we're going to see two overarching themes, or at least I'm going to try to look at it from two overarching themes. And, and then Jesus ends with what we call a prescription to remedy 
the problem that was ex existed in Ephesus at the time. As I look at this letter, the, the first thing that I, I would recognize, or the first way I would characterize um, Jesus' assessment of the church or the instruction that he wanted them to understand is that being religious is not sufficient. In fact, I'd go a step further in saying that being conservative is not necessarily the same as being faithful. It's important that we would consider that because there's a lot that is right about this church. And as I look at this church and as I describe this church, I would see this as a, a church that in many ways is a model. This would be a great PCA church. This would be a great Reformed church. This would be a church that most of us would look at and say they have it all together. They have their act together. So let's first look at, consider some of the things that are right about this church. The first thing that we see is that they were a church that was sound, had sound doctrine. I mean, Jesus says to them in this letter, you have tested those who claim to be apostles but, and have, but are not, and you found them false. And the only way that you're able to make that test and to find the truth is by listening to what those people that claim to be apostles speaking for God were saying and then comparing it to what God has clearly already said, finding out if what they were teaching is true or if what they were teaching is inconsistent with what God has already revealed. And these people, having, uh, having um, heard these people teach, had a root and a soundness in their biblical knowledge and their doctrinal understanding. They listened to the teaching and said, this is not from God. They found them to be false. Towards the end of the letter, Jesus makes another statement, and he says, you hate the, 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 uh, the Nicolaitans. And I won't go into great detail about the Nicolaitans because I'd like for you to stay awake for a little while longer. But it suffices to say that this was a group that claimed the name of Christ. They claimed to be Christians, and yet they taught heretical. They taught not only in a way that took people away from the truth of the gospel and the glory of God, but actually their teaching led people into licentiousness, and they, they uh, lived in a way that was inconsistent with the holiness that God calls his people to. And so as they were growing in favor in that particular region, this church saw their way of life, listened to what they were teaching, applied gospel and biblical principles and found these people lacking and to such a point they were passionate about the fact that they didn't like them. It wasn't that they just ignored them. They did not like, they hated what these people were doing and how they were leading people astray. Both of these are clear examples of a people who had a characteristic of an appreciation for and, a, and sound doctrine. And Jesus is commending them for it. And one of the things that I appreciate about this church is there are many people who have an appreciation for sound doctrine. And my hope and prayer is that more and more people would hunger to grow deeper in our understanding of what God has revealed and, and, and just how beneficial that is to us. But I also understand that there's an awful lot of people to whom the word doctrine is a four-letter word. And I understand why. Perhaps in your own background or perhaps people that you have encountered that are serious about doctrinal um, depth. It's caused division in, in churches over secondary matters, things that just don't seem to be of importance. And other times, just their passion about doctrine, and they're just 
and just an ugliness in their life. A friend of mine used to say that there are some people who are, in, 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 that are, they're, they're, just, they're dead right. The sad thing is that they're just mostly dead. And if you've encountered people like that, then you can easily associate the idea of study of doctrine as just being an ugly and a worthless thing. And so the countermeasure that a lot of people have embraced in evangelical circles today is, I just won't know anything. Then I won't be in danger of being an obnoxious jerk. The problem is it misunderstands a couple of things. One is Jesus is commending these people for sound doctrine. It must be important. And if we understand what doctrine really is, it's a gift from God so that we can understand what God has revealed about himself, so that we can understand ourselves, we can understand what God has done for us, and we can understand the hope that God has laid out before us. All of that comes from a right understanding of doctrine. But doctrine not only has a right understanding, there must be a right use of doctrine. And doctrine is not used to beat people over the head. It's used to enlighten our own hearts, our own minds, so that we might grow in our relationship with the Lord as well. Doctrine should be first preached inward before it's declared outward. But there are some who seem to take doctrine, they use it the wrong way, and if we were to you know, put a picture of them, they're like little referees at a ball game, and every time they see somebody slightly off, they blow their whistle and call a foul. Instead of letting their understanding of doctrine shape their understanding of how they live life so that they can enjoy and play the game. The people who misuse doctrine in that way are, are, never seem to understand that the referees never actually win a game because they don't play. And yet, that doesn't seem to be the problem of the church in Ephesus here. Because as Jesus is speaking to them and commending them for the doctrine, he also says, these people played the game. Because he commends them for their sound doctrine, but he also says to them another thing that was really good about them is that they were, had hard works. They had good works. They had a great reputation because of the works that they did. The description of these people, and from what we know about the church, is they would have been, in our day, they would have been the church that had the programs and the programs. You need something, they had a program for it. A good program. A program rooted in sound doctrine. For every age, for every need, they had a program. And it wasn't only geared inside, but their reputation was good outside of the church as well. They were ministering. They were on mission to the people that were around them. This was a faithful and a very a church that's commendable. And they weren't naive either, because the other thing that Jesus is talking about them is these are people that they ministered and they endured. He says, you've endured hardship. In other words, they'd experienced both the dry seasons and the, and the exciting seasons in their life together, in their life living out their Christian faith. They had endured hardship, whether it came from persecution or just simple disappointments that are inevitable in life when you live with, around other people, whether inside or outside the church. We disappoint one another sometime or another, or others disappoint us. These people remained strong and steadfast, and they endured. And in, for the right motive, Jesus says, you've endured for my name's sake. And while they remained active and persevering, they were they didn't embrace the evil things of the culture. As I look at these things, I, I see that's a good evangelical, reformed, conservative church. That's us. Or at least what many times, I, that's what I pray that we will continue to be. 
as a church, as believers within the church. But Jesus says, look, all these things are great, but there's something you lack. And it is a big deal. He's saying your good works, your good reputation, your sound doctrine, it's not enough. You lack one thing. You don't have the love that you used to have. And so we see Jesus speaking to the believers there in Ephesus and speaking to us through them as a conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, doctrinal-studying church and people. Not only is religion, being religious and being conservative, not sufficient. He reorients our measuring stick and tells us very clearly that the essence of the Christian faith is measured in love. He doesn't minimize any of those other things. He's commending them for. So the answer is not to say we drop those things and we only look at this, but he's saying there's something that is missing. You no longer have that. You have forsaken your first love. I couldn't help the other night being at the bandstand tribute thinking if somebody was to write a song about the Ephesians that I'm getting ready to talk about, they would have titled it, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. And, but it wasn't performed. <laughs> we missed it, the opportunity the other night for that one. But uh, nevertheless, that's what he's saying to the Ephesians. You used to, there used to be a passion, and now that passion is gone. You've got lots of motion, but you have very little emotion in, in your life. Jesus says, there's a lot that's good, but there's a breach in our relationship. And the most important thing is not what it used to be. There's a distance between us, a lack of passion and a lack of real affection. What Jesus tells us is that really the essence of Christianity is and the measuring stick for where you are in your spiritual life, whether you are vital or whether you are faithful, is found in the answer to this question. Do you love Jesus? And before you answer the question, I I want you to stop and take a step back, think for a moment, and ask yourself, what do you think the people in Ephesus would have said a day before they got the letter? The same thing I would usually say. Of course. Look what all I'm doing for you. I know what you've done for me. But Jesus measures not so much the external, but he measures first and foremost the internal. He measures our hearts. and He's pointing out to them that while their actions are commendable, admirable, there is no passion. There is not, they're not motivated by love anymore. Not real love, not for him. And while I don't know for certain, I suspect that they are a good example of what happens to a lot of us at any, any point in time in any relationship, but certainly with our relationship with the Lord, is we begin well. There is a love and excitement and a passion, and we do the things that we're supposed to do excited about that. But somewhere along the line, our motive of being propelled by love for the Lord is shifted for love for ourselves. We feel good. We do it in our other relationships, too. We're compelled. We want to do things that bring pleasure to the one either whom we're serving or whom we're serving for, and yet we find we have the pleasure, and so we then start desiring the pleasure. We like the fact that people respect us, that people admire us, that people say good things about us because of the things we do. And then somewhere along the line, 
without our awareness, that becomes the mode of what we do. And that which should be the fuel is no longer the primary fuel, and we just assume it because that was originally the case. We haven't changed. We've done a lot of really good things, and we do it for them, but they're not the object of our affection anymore. And that's what Jesus was saying took place in the life of the Ephesian church, and it's very scary because it happens in my life a lot. I don't know the reasons why necessarily, and, and for all of us, they could be different. Now, there's a lot of things that happen in life. We experience hardship, things that occupy our attention, our time. We just feel the pressure, and eventually, before we know it, we just don't feel passion on things about things. Perhaps things are just going along just fine, just normal, and we're not forced to be thinking about that, about our need and what's been done for us. We're still committed. So we just don't notice. We don't notice when we become lukewarm. We don't notice when we become tepid. Why would we? Because it happens gradually. Whatever the reasons for the Ephesians or whatever the reasons in my life or whatever the reasons in your life, Jesus is not really asking them to figure out the reasons. He's just pointing out the problem because he says it is a, a serious problem, a big problem. How serious is Jesus? Jesus says, I'm the one who is walking among you, the reference at the beginning, and he says, I'm the one who holds the stars, seven stars in my hand. It's the power of his sovereignty and glory. I walk among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are references to the, are, are, are uh, symbolic of the seven churches in Asia Minor, in current Turkey, that he's writing to here in these chapters. And he says, I'm walking among you. I know what's going on. I, 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 and uh, words that can be comforting, but words that can be frightening. It's comforting if we need comfort. Uh, it's frightening if we know that we're not faithful. You know, it moves from, I understand, to, I know what you did. Those are same words can be used, but circumstances dictate that. Jesus is pointing out the problem to them, but as an expression of his love. Not in a condemning way. We know that even from the beheading of the letter. Do you know what the word Ephesians means or Ephesus means? I mean, loosely translated or at least related, it, it means beloved or, or darling. The beginning of this letter, he's writing to them. He begins the letter essentially saying, Dear darling, but you don't love me like you used to. And he's not saying, Stop it. He's just pointing it out. Because of his great love, he's not willing to live with a lifeless, loveless relationship. He loves too passionately, and there's too much at stake, not so much for him, but for you, for the nature of the relationship. He's not, he won't allow that. So we're faced to ask the question, do I love Jesus? Perhaps today is the first time you've asked yourself that in a long time, at least seriously. One thing is we're fortunate about is that the Scriptures don't leave us to just kind of go only with our feeling. We have some objective standards of demonstration of love that, that we've been given. We won't go into great detail, and there are more than these, but here are a few that the Scripture tells us that are objective measures of our love for Christ. In John 14, 15, Jesus is speaking with the disciples, and as they understand uh, how much he's loved them, and he says to them, if you love me, obey what I've commanded. It's important that we hear what he said and what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you want me to love you, do what I tell you. Unfortunately, I think that's the message that we hear, at least that's the message that some of us live with. What he says really needs to be put in context. For a people 
who have been feeling and growing and, and knowing God has loved me. I don't even know how to express it. How do I thank him? It's not like I can pay him back. In fact, the attempt to pay him back is insulting. But I want to express love for him. How do I express love for someone who has done so much for me that it's incalculable? And Jesus says, here's one way. If you love me, just do what I've told you to do. And the thing that's amazing about that command is while we're expressing love for Christ, we also realize that what he's commanded us to do is actually for our benefit. His commands are an expression of his love for us. And when we come to that understanding and we realize, by and large, life is going better because we are walking wisely in accordance with God's standards, we're amazed how much more he loves us, which causes us to love him even more deeply. But one tangible way is, are you obeying? Now, the Ephesians were obeying a lot of what he said, but they still were loveless. But one way that you can evaluate whether you love Jesus is, are you obeying what he's commanded you to do? If the answer is no, well, then there's a breach in your relationship, at least at that point. Jesus later on, John records this for us. He says this, there's another way. He's talking with Peter in the restoration time. And it's really the way I've always understood this. It's kind of like going back to middle school. It's the best way of understanding it. Jesus is asking Peter, really at Peter's level, whether it's spiritual or maturity or whatever, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, sure. Jesus asks him again, do you love me? And Peter thinks, says, yeah. And then going back to middle school, Jesus says this. Is, he changes the word in the Greek. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers, I like you. And it's, a, it's an intense like. It's like a middle school, you know, couple like. They like. They're going together. It's not love, but it's a, it's a, a like. And Jesus responds, you know what, if you even really like me, feed my sheep. And so another way of expressing your love for Christ is to feed a sheep. Now, for some of us, that seems to be easier than others. I mean, Camper and I have a responsibility and about 20 others in the part of the church that are teaching elders in the PCA. I'm exaggerating, there's only eight of us. But anyway, that's uh, and Rob. And, and they, we have the opportunity to preach and to feed the sheep of the church, and, and that makes sense. But what do you do? We're not probably giving the pulpit over to everyone. You may not be leading a, a Bible study or a Sunday school class. How are you to feed the sheep? While the preaching and the teaching is part of it, the fact is, is when God has called us, and when Jesus has called us to be part of his family, he's called us to live in community. And as those who live in community, we are not only encouraged, but we are required to encourage one another with the gospel, to feed each other with the truths of the gospel. As you live in community, at times you find people who are discouraged or wandering a little off track. You have the opportunity to feed them with the truths of the gospel and the glory of God. Sometimes the love that you have for them might require that you say, hey, I'm concerned about you. You know, God says this, and, and I just, how is that going in your life? And you may have to confront. But those who are broken, whether by your confrontation or they're living in brokenness, aware of their own wandering, you have the opportunity and an obligation to proclaim to them what Jesus has done for broken people like you and me and feed them with the truths of the gospel. That's a demonstration of not only of love for the people that you're feeding, but Jesus says when you do that, when you love them because I've loved you, and you feed my sheep, that's a demonstration of loving me. John picks up on that and kind of builds on that in his own epistle in 1 John 2 and 3. He says to us that we are to love others. That's a way of showing we love him. We can't claim to love God if we don't love others. But while almost everybody in 
evangelicalism knows John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 is a beautiful example. We know what love is because Christ laid his life down for us. We ought, therefore, lay our lives down for our brothers. Jesus claims that as we lay our lives down and love one another, he is receiving that as love for him. These are all mechanics, and they're all important, but there's one other that I just bring to your attention. We see perhaps wonderfully described in Psalm 42, the beginning of that psalm, psalm the first uh, verse we, we use in songs a lot of times, which the songs kind of are out of context of where the rest of that psalm goes, but it's a beautiful picture anyway. Where the psalmist begins by saying, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord. The imagery is that the, the deer, which is dehydrated, is in need and delights in the water that it's seeking after. And that we, who have been redeemed, who belong to God, should have that same kind of delight and need and affection and joy when we have what we are thirsting for, the presence and the grace of God. And it causes our hearts to rejoice and delight. It's not just mechanical. Jesus is talking about passion. We're asking ourselves, do I love Jesus that way? And the Ephesians were lacking. And all too often, I'm lacking. And you might be finding yourself sitting here today and saying, I don't. I can't. I can't even imagine how. I used to. I'd like to. But how do I do it? It's not like I can sit here and say, love, 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 and then, I, you know, I convince myself to do it. It doesn't work. But because Jesus loves us, and he's pointing it out not to condemn us, he's pointing it out because it has to be brought out in the open. The relationship's not what it used to be. And now that it's out in the open, we can deal with it. You can harden your heart and walk away, which would probably indicate that you never loved him really in the first place. You just liked all the cool stuff that he promised. If you know that you need to be somewhere and you're not and, and, and acknowledge, I can't get there, Jesus doesn't leave us waiting. He gives us what I'll call the three R's for a recipe. It has nothing to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic, fortunately for me. But he says the first thing that you need to do when you realize the love is not where you want it to be, where it should be, is remember. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He's calling us to think back to when the gospel first got a grip on you, when it first made sense, when you first understood how much God has loved you and how he de demonstrated that through what Christ has done for you. I would say that it's appropriate to even say we can go back a little bit further before we were born and particularly gripped by the gospel. Remember from how we have fallen because we, you and I and actually all of humanity, was created after the image of God in perfect relationship with God and then we fell. We're alienated from God. We had perfect fellowship, perfect love with God, and now it's broken. And how does God respond to that? He loved us when we had run away from him. He gave his son. And when we first are gripped by the gospel, how was it? It's a matter of remembering the way things used to be. I have a picture in my desk that I've had for a number of years of Carolyn soon after we had started going out. She has occasionally gotten angry with me and makes the accusation that I liked her better when she was 20 than now, which is not the case. Um, just going on public record for that. 
but the picture actually is a reminder of, to me of not only the beginning, but, everywhere, but, but where we are now and everything that's in between. I don't need a picture to remind me of where we are now because I'm living it. But having the picture and where we are now, it enables me to remember everything that is in between, the highs and the lows, and the lows are usually my fault, but the highs and the lows, and then how she has loved me, which causes and reminds me and rekindles the love uh, that I have for her even more. And Jesus is saying, essentially, it's the same thing. Just remember. Remember where you've been. I've never forsaken you. I've provided for you. I've fulfilled this. And he's not giving you a checklist to say, see, I deserve to be loved. He's just saying, just let me love you. Remember. Remember how it feels when you let me love you. Remember that. The second R is to repent. Repent gets a bad word, but repent is a beautiful. The only ones that can repent are those who belong to the Lord. Other people are pleading with God to forget. People who repent, the believers, are called, and Scripture calls it a grace of repentance because we go knowing that we've already been forgiven, but we are getting our minds renewed, acknowledging, God, you are right, I've wandered. We don't grovel. But in repentance, which is a beautiful thing, and I wish I had time to go in detail, and we'll do that another time, we make a change. We are repenting of how we have wandered. But the opposite side of repentance is believing, which goes back with the remembering. Faith and repentance are never separated from one another. Great Puritan Thomas Watson said, faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. Take one of those wings off, and you probably wouldn't have got as far as an airplane with no gas because you cannot fly. Both are essential, and God, Jesus invites us in not so that we can grovel, but so that we can experience the joy of the restoration and forgiveness. When we acknowledge that we are wrong and we hear, I love you, and that has never changed. glorious message. And con- consistent with that, there's a third R that's not really in the ESV as it is in some others, but the concept is there, is recover. Now, in one sense, recovery is a byproduct of the faith and repentance, of remembering and repenting and your heart being changed, and you can begin to recover the love. But he, Paul says, or not Paul, um, John says in this that do the things that you used to do. That's part of the recovery process. If you've been away, if you've grown apart, whether it's in marriage or others, and you begin to think, what did we used to do, and start doing some of those. There's good reasons why we don't do some things we used to, but sometimes just going back and do what we used to do helps us to rekindle things in the first overall. For those who do this, there is a great promise. Jesus says in verse 7, it's, it's an interesting promise, but it's a beautiful promise. He says, He who has an ear, and again, it's he who has an ear. doesn't say you have to have two ears. If you're here and you have one, at least one ear, this applies to you. If you have two, I guess it doubly applies to you. If you have more than that, well, you're a little freaky. But this is your, um, (laughs) but if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Here's what he says. To the one who conquers or overcomes... I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Beautiful promise, except we still have a problem. I can't overcome. I can't conquer. If I could conquer, I, would have, I wouldn't be in the situation that I'm in. But that actually, the inability reminds us of what Jesus has already told us. I have overcome the world for you. 
if you'll just trust in what I have done for you, if you'll just accept my love, then what I have done is counted as yours. You have also overcome. In other words, Jesus is saying to those who will let me love you, here's the promise. You will get to fellowship. You will be in my presence. You will get to eat of the tree of life in God's paradise. It's a future promise, but it's also a taste that we get today. This is what Jesus wants for us, is to not forsake other things for the sake of love, but look at our hearts. Do we love Jesus? And he promises us it is worth going through the effort to rekindle the love that you have lost. Let me pray. Father, as we consider this word, we thank you that you have not left us to struggle or to wonder about ourselves. But through the example of these believers who are a lot like us, may we also see our hearts, that we may benefit from your instruction to them, that the love in our life might grow again. Lord, for those who already feel the love, let them grow deeper in understanding and feeling of it, that they might know how that much they are loved. For those whose hearts have grown cold, Lord, ignite it. Open their eyes to know how much you have loved them. Lord, bless us that we may be a blessing to you and to others. We pray in Jesus.